0: MSW Media.
1: Ukraine Envoy Bill Taylor provides devastating testimony that establishes a quid pro quo in the House impeachment inquiry. What can Republicans possibly do to defend Trump besides creating a circus? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Before we get to our show, I want to spend three minutes talking about what we're changing as a result of our listener survey. Thank you to the 860 of you who responded and to the winner of our gift card, Martina Krause. We've already made some minor changes. We eliminated the phone call sound effect, and I've made the introduction to the show much shorter. To improve sound volume and reduce variation, we now use a compressor and a normalizer. But there's more to come. Today we're launching our new website, which you can find at ontopicpodcast.com. All one word, ontopicpodcast.com. Now you can search and browse past episodes, you can view bios for all of our guests, and you could submit questions and feedback on the show. On our website, you'll also find a link to our new Patreon page. That's a way that you can subscribe for bonus content and help support the show. I've spent a lot of money on the podcast, and to add new features, I've hired somebody to help keep up our website and our community. And speaking of the community, the lowest level of Patreon sponsorship is $3 a month. That gets you access to our special Facebook group and weekly email newsletter. Patty and I will be in the group, and I'll be in there most days commenting, answering questions, and making points that I don't make on Twitter. I'll be active in the group multiple times a week, and I'm going to get some of our guests in there too. If you sponsor us for at least $5 a month, you'll be able to submit questions that I'll answer in depth in the weekly email newsletter. So I'll answer questions from the $5 sponsors each week in the newsletter, and I'll also address some other topics that didn't make it into the show. We have even higher tiers of sponsorship. For $10 a month, you can hear your name read on the end, at the end of the show each week. For $50 a month, you can come on once every six months and ask your own question. Look, the podcast itself is always going to be free. But what we're doing is, to create, is we're doing more now to create more content and better content for you. And it would mean a lot to me if you could help and, and help us support that effort. This podcast uh, is a labor of love, uh, and your help can help us keep making it better. So, Patty, I will tell you, it's been quite a while uh, since we've been doing this podcast. Uh, We are finally getting to a point where we're adding more. I think people have talked for a long time about wanting to have different ways of interacting with it and have it be more than just a uh, weekly thing. So
2: well, and you have such a dynamic audience. So I know that they and they're you know they're eager to participate in so many different ways because because it's all important.
1: It is. And, you know, people have often said it's like, well, you know, they have all these questions and issues that aren't getting covered. So this, I think, will give us a way, uh, you know, I don't always, um, you know, have the opportunity to write a column or a thread or do something on every topic. And this will give an opportunity and kind of a structured way for me
2: to do something every week. It's a great idea. I think it'll work out well.
1: I think so, too. I'm excited. I like the web page, too. Uh, it was pretty cool. So, you know, I have to say, too, it's great to have you back. I know you've been pretty busy on your campaign.
2: It's been so much fun. And thank you so much for being one of the hosts of my campaign kickoff party.
1: Absolutely, of course. Uh, and I will say it has been interesting at the same time to have one eye on the uh, impeachment inquiry. And I'm sure uh, between knocking on doors, uh, you occasionally have a minute to see what's happening in the background. Uh, You know, we had some devastating testimony this week. Uh, You know, Ambassador Bill Taylor, or excuse me, uh, Ukraine envoy former Ambassador Bill Taylor um, testified. I wrote a a column that came out uh, yesterday uh, saying the president has no defense. Uh, I I thought it really kind of undercut any possible defense Trump has to this conduct at
0: this point.
2: And it is startling uh, the reaction of the Republicans who continue to dig in and want to impede the process in different ways and then start and just in dramatic ways, as a matter of fact.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, some of it, there's very small uh, pockets of points where it's legitimate. You know, for example, Britt Hume tweeted out my column, and then he said, well, there's supposedly some cross-examination of Taylor. Okay, well, we'll see when he gets cross-examination, sure. Um, But a lot of it is just the counterfactual stuff. You know, hey, Ukraine didn't know what was going on, and it's like, well, actually, Taylor testified that they did, or, um, you know, saying essentially, well... He didn't succeed in pulling this off, but, you know, in fact, he did. He just got caught, and this became public uh, before the scheme was completed. You know, the Ukrainians did agree to go and make an announcement, actually on CNN, um, to announce that they were going to do these investigations, uh, and it really was the fact that, that the aid, the ho- hold up on the aid became public that derailed all of that, um, so— you know, to me, this is usually consequential. And, of course, we, we had this circus yesterday with the Republicans storming their way into the skiff. That That is really something.
2: Yeah. I, 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 is, this, is there any – have you ever heard of anything like that before to
1: – No. I mean there's a – I worked in an office where there was a skiff. Uh, I was not somebody because I was working on financial – uh, crimes, I was not somebody who was going in and out of the skift to view classified uh, materials uh, and uh, everyone treated it like a very serious thing there 's all these warnings and little places where you 'd have to put your electronic devices and you 'd have to sign in and out and it was this, you know it was something that people took seriously. Uh, And if I barged into the skiff, I'd be fired. I mean, that's what would have happened. I wouldn't have had a job. Uh, So it's really weird. uh, And I think it's just these these, uh, Republican members of Congress thought they could get away with it.
2: No doubt about it. I mean, that has been, I think, a theme throughout this administration is how emboldened individuals are to sort of take matters into their own hands. Yeah. And do things that are unprecedented.
1: Uh, I agree. I I think that... We're at a stage now where if 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 there's no sort of obvious consequence for something, then the yeah. tr- Trump and his allies are going to try to get away with it. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest because he, he's going to have some really interesting <laughs> um, perspectives to offer. Uh, Ned Price, uh, somebody some of you may know because he he appears uh, pretty often on MSNBC. Um, but he also, but for uh, for twelve years, he was a CIA officer. Um, He also uh, worked – he was detailed to the NSC, the National Security Council, during the Obama administration, and he was uh, a a spokesperson for the NSC. Uh, He's somebody who talks very widely about national security issues. He had a lot to say publicly about the testimony of Mr. Taylor. Uh, I think, you know, he's going to give us a real insider's perspective uh, on what this means from a nat- for, for our national security uh, and how irregular and, and troubling uh, the actions of the Trump administration were in this uh, in this uh, occasion. Excellent. Ned, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: I have to tell you, I—, I reached out to you to, to be a guest in this podcast because I was struck by some of the things that you were saying about um, Mr. Taylor's testimony. I thought it was obviously a hugely important moment in the impeachment inquiry, devastating testimony for the administration. And I'm curious what if you can explain to us what your perspective was when you read it.
0: Right. I, I think the testimony and certainly the prepared remarks that Ambassador Taylor submitted were uh, the most dramatic of this inquiry so far, not because they change the contours of the underlying scandal, but because I think they magnify, really, Renata, the scope and the scale of what we're dealing with here. Uh, And really, those prepared remarks laid this right at the president's feet, which I think is um, uh, what was especially important. So, specifically, um, we learned from Ambassador Taylor's prepared testimony Uh, and this is important, that the quid pro quo came specifically from President Trump. It didn't come from people around him, it didn't come from uh, uh, certainly not career uh, officials within his administration, it came directly from Trump. Um, Trump, we learned from Ambassador Taylor's statement, told our ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, in a September 7th phone call, that Zelensky, quote, must go to a microphone, and say he is opening investigations of Biden and 2016 election interference. That's precisely what Trump said, according to this testimony. Uh, And it's the president himself that is saying this. Two, and this is related, I think what uh, Taylor's testimony underscored is the fact that this was never about corruption. It was never about corruption generally, as we've heard from President Trump, as we've heard from Mick Mulvaney, as as we've heard from uh, others within his administration. It was about the bidens specifically now of course we've we've you know known this all along to some degree i mean when when uh, prior to all of this did president trump ever speak about corruption, as if his foreign policy was predicated on this global anti-corruption drive. And in fact, President Trump has uh, consistently embraced uh, some of the most corrupt autocrats from the world's most corrupt and repressive regimes. I'm thinking of uh, the leaders of uh, the Saudi regime, uh, the Egyptian government, um, of course, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, not to mention Vladimir Putin. Himself. Uh, But what we learned from Ambassador Taylor's testimony is this this was about Biden uh, and getting dirt on uh, uh, Vice President Biden's son specifically. It's not clear that uh, President Trump even uh, knew much about Burisma uh, and the corruption um, affiliated uh, with any particular uh, entity uh, or even Ukraine generally. He was concerned with one specific person. And finally, I think this is the other key takeaway from Taylor's testimony. It wasn't subtle, the quid pro quo here. (laughs) It it wasn't as if the Ukrainians were left to guess or to sort of scratch their heads and say, you know, why is it we're not getting our aid? Why is it we're not getting a White House meeting with President Trump? It was actually relayed to them uh, in stark terms. And again, this was at the instruction of President Trump. Taylor said in his prepared remarks, that on September 8th of this year, again, Gordon Sondland, our ambassador to the EU, told the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky directly, uh, that if he did not, quote, clear things up in public, uh, we would be at a, quote, stalemate. um, And as if to make it explicit, Taylor's opening uh prepared remarks said that he understood stalemate to mean what it clearly means in that context, that Ukraine would not receive the much needed military assistance uh, if President Zelensky didn't actually go out and fulfill his end of the quo.
1: Yeah, he also said that, you know, it was his understanding that this was and he he communicated to the Ukrainians that uh, Ambassador Taylor did, that this would be an all or nothing proposition in other words, that because the, the the year was ending, the fiscal year was ending, that if they did not get the aid in time, then it would expire and they'd get nothing.
0: That's right. That's right. And so that made it all the more uh, of a desperate situation for the Ukrainians. And, and by the way, Renato, this uh, was never... Um uh, An issue that the Ukrainians took lightly for us, you know the American government uh, it's four hundred million dollars uh, in a defense budget that uh, tends to be in you know seven hundred billion dollars seven hundred and fifty billion dollars a year uh, so it's not, not still four hundred million dollars is not a paltry sum, but it, it's not going to break our bank. Uh, in terms of Ukraine, however, um, it really could mean the difference between uh, their territorial integrity. Um, And and not Uh, this is a a conflict that still continues to go on uh, in the eastern part uh, of their country. According to uh, one estimate, more than 50 civilians were killed uh, in eastern Ukraine during this period in question, between May and August, uh, between May and September of this year, uh, when the aid was being withheld. And of course, uh, we can't uh, attribute any uh, causal relationship there, but it underscores the point that this is a conflict. Uh, For them, this is about. Uh, their independence. It's about their territorial integrity. It's about their viability uh, as an independent country, uh, as an independent country next to Vladimir Putin's Russia, which is uh, never an easy proposition.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important context for everyone to have when when they're hearing about this. A lot of people who are listening don't know a lot about Ukraine. And there was a former uh, Soviet republic, I would say probably in many ways um, of the former Soviet republics, other than Russia, which was the majority of the state, it was you know very um, I'd say populous and po- and powerful in terms of its economic strength. It's you know some of the facilities that were there had a lot of important military facilities. It's you know its port and Black Sea and so on and so forth. Since that time. Um, you know, Putin uh, invaded and, and purportedly annexed a portion, an important portion of Ukraine called Crimea, and then he – as you were just pointing out a moment ago, Ned, he has troops in – now, they're, what they are is they're essentially – Russian-backed fighters in eastern Ukraine, it's almost as if, let's say, Canada had a group of of, uh, of, of mercenaries in, uh, in Wyoming or something like that who were um, causing havoc and killing civilians. It would be a, a major concern to the United States of America, particularly if Canada was much more powerful and a much larger military than we did. That's right. That's right.
0: And the, the other pertinent fact here, Ukraine at one time, although briefly, uh, as an independent country, was a nuclear power. <laughs> and uh, Ukraine uh, Willingly gave up Its nuclear weapons In one of the very few instances In history in which that has happened uh, uh, Given the partnership uh, That it was able to Establish with the West Ukraine sits at this intersection Between the West uh, and Russia Which of course under President Putin uh, Has been increasingly revisionist Increasingly aggressive uh, Vis-a-vis all its neighbors Especially these non-NATO Member neighbors And and I make that distinction because, of course, every member of NATO has a guarantee. If you are attacked, the rest of the coalition will come to your defense. Regardless uh, of who uh, the aggressor is, the rest of the coalition will come to your defense. And that's been invoked precisely one time on September 11th, 2001, when the United States was attacked and the other uh, NATO allies uh, came to our defense in Afghanistan in that case. Uh, but it would apply um uh, to any NATO member, were Vladimir Putin uh, to make aggressive moves, Ukraine, however, is not a NATO ally, and so there is not that baked-in guarantee. Uh, that's not to say that uh, NATO is not a friend of the United States. That NATO, they, uh, excuse me, that Ukraine is not a friend of the United States. That Ukraine is not a partner of the United States. It most certainly uh, is, but for Ukraine itself, it's in a perilous position because it lacks that guarantee, uh, and in. Today's day, it has a President Donald Trump, a President Trump who, uh, as we saw in that July 25th uh, transcript, uh, was willing to put his own political interests ahead of not only the security interests of Ukraine, our friend and partner, but also the security interests of the United States. It is profoundly in our security interest that Russia be deterred, be deterred against going further into Ukraine and be deterred against going against uh, both NATO allies and non-NATO allies
1: when When Russia went in and, and invaded crimea and, and and you know purported to annex Crimea, the West was left in a very difficult situation. You know Do we want to start you know a war with Russia or threaten a war with Russia over a piece of Ukraine, which is not a member of nato very uh, difficult situation ultimately, sanctions were imposed on russia uh you know aid was given to Ukraine and so on uh but as you point out we're that they, they are in a difficult position. Uh, and I it, and I think it's it's highlighted. But one thing that I I found interesting about Taylor's testimony was, Taylor was recruited by Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, to return to, to service, and he said that strong support for Ukraine and our our government's position towards support and and uh, uh, and helping Ukraine was important to him. And, you, and Pompeo said that will still be the administration's position. Uh, and then you know what was clear is, for example uh, there was a bipartisan uh, group of Senators, Ron Johnson and Chris Murphy, a Republican and a Democrat who both were urging uh, the Ukraine to stay out of u s domestic politics, and that the best thing they had going for them was bipartisan support in congress and Ukraine was it appeared very genuinely confused about what to do because people like Taylor and those two senators were saying stay out of domestic politics." And they said at one point they don't want to be a pawn in U.S. domestic politics. But then essentially the, the administration was trying to force them to do just that.
0: Yeah, they they really had no no choice here. Uh, It's not as if Ukraine, and this is where uh, the Trump narrative uh, diverges so fundamentally from reality. It does that in a few cases, of course. Uh, But here it's especially stark. President Trump's narrative, uh, and it seems that this narrative was planted by people like Rudy Giuliani and others around him, was that Ukraine had, uh, as early as 2016, meddled in our domestic politics, that Ukraine uh, was somehow involved in the hack of the DNC, perhaps it wasn't Russia at all, uh, perhaps Ukraine was the hidden hand, the black hand, uh, behind uh, the attack on our democracy in 2016, and somehow uh, because There may be a Ukrainian connection to a private U.S. company called CrowdStrike. It seems that the DNC server is now hiding away in Ukraine. It's a very convoluted story that, even on its face, uh, doesn't make much sense. But uh, it's, it's pertinent here because... President Trump, in his warped understanding of all of this, thinks that, uh, appears to think at least, that Ukraine was the one to involve itself in our politics. I think what you hear relayed in Ambassador Taylor's prepared remarks is that it's quite the opposite. Uh, Ukraine wants nothing to do with our politics, and frankly, it's in Ukraine's national interest not to get involved in our politics, because uh, in their own natural state, our politics are on the Ukrainian side. As you said, Renato, it has been a Democratic and Republican uh, tenet of foreign policy, especially post-2014, for solid uh, stalwart support uh, for Ukraine. And I will say this, uh, elements of the Trump administration, and, and this, this really excludes President Trump himself, but uh, key individuals that, that within his administration had, had prior to all of this taken an even more strident approach to the defense of Ukraine, and actually uh, greenlit uh, defensive uh, security assistance in the form of anti-tank weapons uh, for Ukraine as uh, another means to deter Russia. And I think that just underscores the point that this was not an Obama policy to stand by Ukraine. This was not uh, a Republican policy only to stand by Ukraine. This is something that enjoyed bipartisan support. And of course, Zelensky didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to jeopardize that. Uh, and so why wade into our messy, chaotic uh, political system uh, when he didn't have to? Unfortunately, when it came down to it, though, uh, President Trump essentially sent the message through his envoys and through his own actions and inaction uh, that Ukraine really didn't have a choice. That They wanted this stalwart support um, and, and this important assistance to continue that they essentially had to make themselves a belligerent in our hand-to-hand political combat. Uh, It's not a a position any country wants to be in. It's certainly not one Ukraine wanted to be in.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it seemed like from reading uh, Ambassador Taylor's testimony that the scheme worked. In other words, in the end, uh, Zelensky was going to go on CNN and make a statement saying that these investigations were going to be opened, which is what Trump wanted all along. Um, and really, I, I, it seems to me, and I'd be interested in your perspective, the reason that ultimately that interview didn't happen is because uh, there, there began to be public reports of the withholding of aid to Ukraine, and there became increasing public pressure about that.
0: Yeah. So, so you know, the White House has resorted to any number of defenses to try and make their case that this wasn't a quid pro quo. And one of the uh, more hollow defenses, I think, that the White House has resorted to is this idea that, you know what, uh, the aid was released. Uh, Ukraine got its $400 million, President Trump met with Zelensky uh, uh, at, the, at, the, uh, at the G20, all's well that ends well. There was never a quid pro quo. Well, if you actually look at the timeline, that's not what happened. Uh, the aid to Ukraine was on hold between July and September 11th of this year. It was, September 11th is important, because, uh, important for a couple of reasons. One, it was two days. Uh, before Adam Schiff first went forward uh, with the fact that there was an urgent, credible whistleblower complaint. Uh, And of course, that whistleblower complaint ultimately ended up being uh, an account of this whole saga. Uh, But September 11th of this year was also weeks after the White House first started to get word from various parts, uh, from various other parts of the executive branch, that there were profound concerns uh, within uh, the uh, career ranks about what had happened on that phone call on July 25th. Um, before the whistleblower formally filed his complaint uh, with the IC inspector general, this individual we, uh, we have read went to the CIA general counsel and uh, detailed uh, the, the issue. The CIA general counsel then went to the White House, went to the Justice Department, uh, and made uh, and, and relayed these same set of facts. Uh, the acting DNI uh, and later the uh, inspector general of the DNI did the same, uh, went to the White House, went to the Justice Department. Uh, all that to say, well before September 11th, the date the aid was released, the White House was tracking the fact that there was a lot of discontent, there was a lot of concern, and that this concern was uh, uh, was bubbling over into the public. Uh, and so I think there is a uh, incredibly strong case to be made that the aid was not released on September 11th because there was any sort of natural conclusion to what we were led to believe was just a, a review of the aid. No, the White House released the aid because it knew it was about to be caught in the act Uh, And if the whistleblower complaint were to be made public while the aid was still on hold, that would shine a huge spotlight uh, on the scheme. Fortunately, however, the whistleblower complaint, uh, the testimony we've received, the second whistleblower uh, who has since come forward, the contemporaneous press accounts, they all paint a picture of what was happening and what was going on, uh, even if the White House tried to uh, sweep it under the rug by releasing this aid uh, before it all came completely into public view.
1: Yeah, I have to say that um, for me, what what I what what I got you know here out of this testimony, the most important thing was that in the beginning, when we first saw the transcript, it seemed to me that you could try to make an argument that well, Trump was trying to pressure them to do it, but there wasn't a, a, a quid pro quo. Here, it's so explicit and so clear. I mean, at one point, you know, Sondland makes the makes the uh, argument to uh, Taylor, and apparently, uh, Kurt Volker, who's for, I guess forced to resign, or you know, he was the kind of the fall guy, at least in the in in the beginning of this saga. Also, apparently, had basically the same conversation with Sondland, or excuse me, with uh, Taylor, where he said, "Look, Trump's a businessman, and he's not going to write a check unless he gets something in return." And you know, Taylor said, "Well, the check is." Not his to write. Essentially, this is aid that was appropriated by Congress, and you know the the Ukrainians don't owe him anything. Um, but it seemed to me like it was put so pointedly to so many people that what I wonder, uh, Ned, is what we're going to hear in the wee- in the weeks to come. Because it seems to me Sondland is going to have to answer some questions. I saw today he his attorney claims he doesn't remember that conversation. I think I think it was that conversation or one of his key conversations with Taylor. But, you know, he's probably going to be brought back in. You know, Volcker may be brought back in. And then people like Mike Pompeo, who Taylor sent a cable to, the, to this man saying, I'm very concerned about what we're doing. Uh, and he still has not said publicly, he refuses to answer questions about his response. I mean, he looked like a deer in the headlights um, on Sunday when he was interviewed by George Stephanopoulos, continually re, you know, refusing to answer questions.
0: Yeah, there, there are a lot of tough questions for a lot of senior administration officials uh, in uh, this administration. The other person I would add to that list is is Mike Pence, uh, the the vice president. Uh, Mike Pence uh, traveled to. Uh, Warsaw, Poland, on September 1st. Um, and he, along with John Bolton, uh, were the two senior administration officials uh, who saw Zelensky in person following that July 25th phone call uh, before President Trump saw, saw Zelensky uh, last month. And the question is uh, just how witty of this whole scheme Mike Pence was. You know, Mike Pence claims to have this uh, uncharacteri- uncharacteristic knack or penchant. Uh, for being blind to the wrongdoing that's going on around him. We first saw this uh, when he headed the transition team. And, of course, he had no idea that Mike Flynn was, uh, you know, in his telling, freelancing and that, uh, it, and that he was the one uh, uh, trying to make a, a, a uh, under-the-table deal uh, with the Russian ambassador. But now we're back at that same point, and we are supposed to believe that uh, Mike Pence, Uh, was not aware of the contents of this phone call, uh, even though his own national security advisor was on this call on July 25th, even though uh, he almost certainly would have reviewed the transcript as he was preparing uh, for uh, his meeting with uh, Zelensky, and even though he knew that Zelensky would raise the status uh, of this aid. Uh, because the Ukrainians by September 1st were well aware uh, that there was a problem. Uh, and they were also, we've learned in more recent days, well aware that this problem wasn't technical in nature. It wasn't uh, some sort of uh, DOD-led review process. It was a political issue um, uh, that they had to approach Mick Mulvaney, the president's acting White House chief of staff, in order to resolve this. So I would certainly add uh, Mike Pence to that. The other you know, compelling point here Uh, And something I think we need to keep in mind is that uh, there are a lot of things that that separate uh, career officials like uh, Ambassador Taylor, uh, the other State Department officials, including our former ambassador to Kiev, the Defense Department official who testified yesterday from people like Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence and Gordon Sondland. And that is the career officials tend to be meticulous in the way they document uh, uh, what happens day to day. Uh, it's not only the concerns they have, and certainly quite a few career officials had quite a few concerns in this process, but it's just the, the, the routine minutiae of their day. And uh, I think Ambassador Taylor's note that he sent an eyes-only cable uh, to Secretary Pompeo uh, detailing his concerns is part and parcel of that. I think there's going to be a library Uh, of notes, of memos to file, of emails, of cables uh, that will come to light here that will be tremendously damning uh, for President Trump, not because they were documented contemporaneously to uh, aid an impeachment inquiry, but because this is how career officials conduct business. This is the uh, responsibility uh, and the diligence they attach to their day-to-day work in the way that people like Gordon Sondland almost certainly don't.
1: That's uh, I think an exceptionally good point, and I, I I have I had said I had written a column that came out like yesterday talking about how I thought that the roadmap created by Taylor's testimony was in many ways the most important dr- thing we can not come out you know that can come out of it because you can see kind of going forward what the investigation is going to look like. But I think I had not thought of or conceived of as you point out the 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 note taking. I mean, what we saw here from Taylor by what you're saying is not just because he struck me as a very careful person who's taking very careful notes and really documenting everything. If that's the practice of everybody uh, who's a career person at state, um, that is going to create major problems for the administration going forward.
2: I have a question, though, when it comes to Vice President Pence, is it, is it enough to say that you're ignorant of what was going on? I mean, how do you prove that he knew something or was aware of it? Uh, you know, saying that people took a lot of notes or he should have been briefed. How how easy is that to prove at all that he should have known otherwise?
0: I think in a normal administration, it would be a pretty open and shut, if largely circumstantial case, uh, that the vice president of the United States, uh, and especially one who was traveling to meet the head of state in question, uh, would uh, be in a position to know what had happened. At the very least, he would have been in a position to know that the July 25th call went sideways, that it was inappropriate, uh, that it was potentially verging on criminal. Uh, Because, again, his national security advisor was on that call. Uh, He uh, called transcripts are a key element or at least should be a key element um, of uh, preparation material before uh, a head of state meeting. Um, I find it hard to believe uh, that a, a vice president. Um, would not have availed himself to those materials. But um, it, is a, it is a harder uh, case to make that someone is ignorant of something um, rather than that someone knew something. And so I think um, Mike Pence has relied on that. Um, and he has taken advantage of that, I think, to surprisingly good effect. Um, but the, the challenge may well be that uh, in some of these emails and some of these contemporaneous notes and cables, uh, there will be references to the fact that the vice president's staff was briefed, that Vice President Pence was in on certain meetings. Um, and so I think we could see a trail of breadcrumbs uh, that makes it increasingly difficult for Mike Pence to uh, plead ignorant here.
1: Yeah, if I was questioning Vice President Pence, I mean, where I would start is talking to him about you know, what he was prepped to say to the Ukrainians about why the aid was being withheld. I mean, you had to expect that if he's going to Ukraine or he's going to go meet with Ukrainians, uh, from people from the Ukrainian government, that they're going to ask that question because that was a huge deal to them. And so he you would think that, you know, that he'd be prepped to say something and then it would be, I think, very hard for him to explain why he was prepped to say something, but he didn't know why or what the context was or, or anything like that. I think that's hard to believe.
0: Well, and by all accounts, uh, the first question out of Zelensky's mouth was, you know, about the status of this aid. It's no it's no <laughs> small wonder. Um, in some ways, this is a, an existential question for the Ukrainians, um, because, again, this aid uh, stands in between them and uh, you know the Russian tribar flag flying over their over their Capitol building
2: do you think that Pence is going to be subpoenaed and will he comply though, <laughs> or will the White House allow him to
0: well uh, that's a uh, it's a good question uh, and unfortunately, I think the answer is that uh, uh, the White House will not in any way take part uh, in this inquiry, at least on an official basis. Um, the White House has made it clear that it's going to stonewall Congress. It doesn't see this as, uh, it sees this as a sham investigation. Um, and it, uh, in in making that case, is also implicitly making the case that Congress is not a co-equal branch of government. So I, I find it very uh, hard to believe that um, uh, the White House itself will cooperate, but again, uh, you you have to remember that uh, there's an official stance, uh, and then there are um, uh, decisions that are made below that level. And all of the career officials who have testified to date have done so in spite of uh, the official stonewalling of their institutions, the Department of Defense and Department of State primarily. Uh, these witnesses have pursued ha- have appeared um, before these committee before these committees pursuant to subpoenas. And it's not that uh, they are doing that um, uh, as an act of rebellion against their home institutions or against the Trump administration and the executive branch. They are doing that pursuant to the law. Uh, They are the only ones who are acting lawfully here uh, by uh, obeying and complying with um, uh, lawful congressional subpoenas. Now, I don't see Mike Pence taking that route, uh, but there have been reports that uh, at least one other uh, whistleblower has emerged, uh, someone who seems to have uh, been familiar with the contents of, uh, directly with the contents of the July 25th call, and therefore someone who pro- who most likely uh, was associated with the National Security Council staff at some point. And so I think um, there is a strong possibility uh, that individuals um, and career officials who were detailed uh, to the White House will continue um, to speak truth when when called upon. Um, I, in, in saying this, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, only after all this came out did we learn that the National Security Council uh, would be uh, downsizing and that it would be um, releasing many of the career officials' Um, who serve within its ranks uh, purportedly uh, as a move to sort of streamline process, purportedly as a move to uh, allow the new national security advisor to um, uh, put his own mark uh, on this institution. Uh, But in the end, I think what this really is, is an effort to get rid of fact witnesses uh, and an effort to um, say that the most um, effective route uh, to... Uh, continue the cover-up, is to uh, downsize the number of witnesses and to get rid of those um, who would be loyal um, to the Constitution, loyal to the law, and who would uh, obey these sort of lawful uh, exercises of uh, congressional authority in the form of subpoena.
1: One person who I think is an interesting wild card here to me is John Bolton. John Bolton uh, was a national security advisor And it's very clear, not only from Ambassador Taylor's testimony, but also from other uh, public accounts of uh, Bolton's views, that Bolton uh, thought this whole thing stunk to high heaven and wanted nothing to do with it whatsoever. I mean, he referred to it as a drug deal. Uh, He's the one who told when Taylor went to him, he said, you need to write a cable to Pompeo. He resigned from the administration uh, some time ago now. There had been a lot of reports he was going to write a book or that he had some critical things he was going to say and so on and so forth. Is there a chance that we could see John Bolton stride in to say, you know, get to to speak publicly about this or, you know, that he could ultimately be an issue for this administration?
0: Uh, absolutely. I, I think um, I think there's a high likelihood that the committees will turn their sights to John Bolton precisely because, uh, as Ambassador Taylor and others have reported, uh, he was not, uh, uh, strangely enough in some ways, he was not an accomplice to this. Uh, he was against this. Um, and he, in fact, uh, played a key role in this uh, famous White House, now famous or infamous White House we- meeting, that went sideways with senior Ukrainian officials and Gordon Sondland uh, and others in which Ambassador Sondland uh, apparently put explicitly on the table um, the, the the quid pro quo at the center of this, we need you to undertake investigations um, if you are to get a White House meeting. Uh, and it was John Bolton who dispatched one of his uh, uh, senior um, uh, aides at the time, Fiona Hill, uh, to... to uh, he, he told her to, you know, go and check in, check in on their meeting and see what's going on in there. And Fiona Hill, uh, according to this testimony, uh, reported back to him that what they were talking about in that room with John Bolton um, was the need to undertake these investigations. So, yes. Now, I don't think he will go public, even if he does go before the committees. And I say that uh, because, unfortunately, it seems John Bolton has decided to monetize uh, his knowledge. And he has signed a a book deal, presumably a a high dollar for year uh, book deal with a major publisher um, uh, for a book that uh, won't be out until next year. Um, uh, I I expect the book will be a tell-all. I expect it will be damning of this administration. Um, but unfortunately, it seems Ambassador Bolton has put uh, his own pocketbook ahead of his uh, ahead of duty and, and responsibility um, to air uh, some of this publicly. The, uh, the final point I would make um, is that even though John Bolton wasn't in favor of this, even though he wasn't uh, one of the co-conspirators, uh, he also didn't leave his job because of it. Uh, it's not as though John Bolton left his perch uh, this summer because he was so fed up with the corruption and the criminality and the lawlessness around him. No, he left his job, either resigned or more likely was fired, uh, because he didn't want to see the administration engage in peace talks with the Taliban. Uh, So even though he was on the right side of of history, it seems, uh, in this episode, uh, it's not that he exercised those principles in any significant way as all this was going down.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. He wasn't even, uh, you know, he he doesn't, he he isn't even someone like, for example, Don McGahn was, you know, this, I'd say, became a famous figure in the Mueller uh, investigation because he said, no, I'm not going to try to fire Mueller and things like that. You know, I'm not going to write a false document. It seems like Bolton, even within the administration, wasn't saying, OK, I'm going to, uh, Ambassador Taylor, I'm going to champion this cause and I'm going to work with you to try to stop this. Uh, he's like, well, you know, contact Pompeo. It's his, you know, it's his
0: thing. I want to have nothing to do talk, with it. Talk to your boss about it. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I thought that was uh, interesting. So wh- one thing I have to say in the, in the face of all of this, uh, Ned, what we've seen more recently is, is I would call it the sort of circus sideshow of the Republicans storming the SCIF. And I was wondering if you can provide some background for folks about what a SCIF is in, and how you, know, how you ordinarily interacted with the SCIF when you were uh, involved in international security.
0: Sure. Uh, So at the very basic level, a SCIF stands for Secure Compartment and Information Facility. And it essentially uh, is a uh, standardized uh, facility in which uh, government officials are authorized to conduct classified work. And there are specific uh, specifications as to the construction, as to the soundproofing, as to the design, uh, all of which are designed Um, uh, to make what goes on inside secure, uh, to make sure that uh, there can't be electronic surveillance, uh, that there can't be uh, physical surveillance, uh, that um, uh, devices, um, uh, to to make it harder for devices to transmit um, uh, from inside of these facilities, also, that the classified work of uh, the government, the executive branch and the legislative branch in this case, um, uh, can move forward unimpeded. Um, and in order to um, uh, to enter a SCIF, and I, uh, for most of my career, worked in a SCIF, uh, my, my office was uh, essentially a SCIF, it was in fact a SCIF, um, you were not authorized to bring in uh, any electronic devices. Um, uh, so, your personal cell phone. Uh, any sort of MP3 player or media player, any sort of Apple watch, anything that, that um, is not a government uh, issued uh, piece of hardware like a computer um, on a classified network uh, has to remain outside of that room. Uh, Because as we all know, these devices can be turned into listening devices. They can divulge uh, sensitive information, uh, including even up to the contents of conversations that take place inside of these facilities. Uh, So the security implications of what happened yesterday aren't insignificant. As we saw, Republican members of Congress parade into this, barge into it, in fact, um, parading with their cell phones. Um, uh, broadcasting live, uh, both video and audio. Um, And then subsequently, we saw they were tweeting live from inside these facilities. Um, Everything, again, from the design to the layout to uh, the the composition of these rooms are supposed to remain uh, uh, closely held, if not classified, so that we don't give our adversaries any advantage uh, as they think about how they might penetrate Uh, the inner sanctum of government here. Um, This particular facility is especially sensitive uh, because it is where uh, organizations like the CIA, like the Office of the Director of National Intelligence provide regular oversight briefings to uh, congressional overseers. They detail for them in these very rooms uh, Particular covert actions, um, particular uh, uh, collection programs, surveillance tactics—they uh, speak in general terms about uh, CIA assets—and uh, so any vulnerability, any additional risk um, that is uh, that these rooms are subjected to in the basement of the Capitol uh, would come at an extremely, uh, an extremely high price.
1: You know, I, I gotta before we move before I respond to what you had to say about the skiff, I, I gotta I gotta ask you. I'm a little surprised here. You were at work, you couldn't have your cell phone on you. You couldn't so what what were you doing? What did, when you needed to post a photo yeah. on Instagram? You exactly. Couldn't?
0: How do you Facebook when the skiff is crazy? <laughs> No Twitter you know, threads. All of that would have to, uh, all of that have, would have to wait for uh, uh, after work hours. Um, when I was in the CIA, um, you know the, the CIA uh, uh, headquarters build the building itself um, isn't quite a skiff, but of course your uh, your personal devices aren't allowed inside. Now all of the offices are separate skiffs. Uh, and so when you, uh, of course, there are various security procedures just, just to get inside the CIA gate, uh, there are security procedures just to get inside the main building, uh, and there are even um, more rigorous procedures to get into your uh, individual office, um, which is, of course, a SCIF. It It is essentially a safe uh, that is large enough to serve uh, as an office space uh, for anywhere from one to 40 people. Um, and so... Everything that would require the use of a personal cell phone would have to wait until you get home. Now, uh, I will say that, uh, especially in more recent years, uh, unclassified networks are accessible uh, in some skiffs. So um, you could you would have a separate standalone system that was totally and completely detached from the classified system on which you could check your Gmail. Uh, you could read the you could read the latest news, um, uh, but of course ninety five percent of your work is conducted on that uh, top secret classified system
1: Wow, well, I, now I know if I ever don 't return someone 's text or it, I miss skiff. some news i 'm in a skiff uh, <laughs> uh, every it's, it, there you go well it 's just interesting because I look, I worked in an office that had a skiff, and that was something that we approached It was almost a sacrosanct thing and you had obviously you had to check in your devices there 's all these warnings you have to sign in i mean there 's all these this rigmarole you have to do to go inside the skiff. And I wasn't the sort of person who was working inside a skiff on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, if I just decided to barge into the skiff, I think I would have gotten fired if people knew about it. I certainly could you, I cannot imagine going, barging inside of our skiff and tweeting from it. I, I mean, I of course, I would be fired. I might as well escort myself out.
0: So I, I will tell you what would normally happen so if you were a career official, if you were a CIA officer, officer, an FBI officer. Um, and and to, to be true, to be frank, it would occasionally happen where you were inside a skiff. I, I even had this happen inside the White House Situation Room, which which itself is a skiff, where you'd be sitting there having a meeting and all of a sudden you would hear a cell phone go off. and people would be mortified, but no one would be more mortified than the person whose bag that cell phone was in. Because, of course, it would just be an innocent mistake. Um, they forgot to check their phone. Uh, they forgot they, they brought that bag that had a personal phone, whatever the case was. And, and in most cases, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the consequences would be you know, getting a security violation from your home office, which is not something you want to do, but it's also not the end of the world. Now, if you are a career CIA officer uh, who was delivering a briefing to Congress and you were to walk into that SCIF with your personal cell phone broadcasting, uh, very much uh, disobeying, uh, actively disobeying the um, words of of uh, of the House Sergeant at Arms, asking you to put your cell phone away, to leave your electronic device in the lockbox, uh, and if you continue broadcasting and tweeting and and communicating with that phone, of course, of course you would be fired uh, and potentially uh, even then some. Um, now, I, I, I get the impression uh, these House members are under the impression that the rules don't apply to them, uh, that they can uh, disobey uh, rules uh, and even laws in some cases to which everyone else is. Uh, is subject. Uh, and I find that pretty ironic um, for a group of uh, protesters, essentially they are protesters, uh, who were calling for, uh, uh, who who demanded uh, access and demanded the same set of rules and information uh, that their colleagues were getting, including their Republican colleagues. Uh, You know, the whole thing, I think, was um, nothing more than a political stunt. Um, But at its core, the whole thing isn't all that dissimilar from really the heart of the scandal um, that has rocked this White House. If you think of what President Trump has done in this case, what he did uh, was to put his own political interests, his narrow political interests ahead of our national security uh, by betraying the American people, betraying his oath of office, betraying our national security by prioritizing dirt on uh, Joe Biden um, uh, and yet exposing a, a friend and partner and exposing our national security itself. Well, what these members did wasn't all that different. Uh, they sought to score cheap political points uh, by willfully and knowingly disobeying uh, and violating uh, security protocols and parameters there, that are there for a good reason. Again, casting aside our national security um, and prioritizing their desire to score these cheap political points. Um, of course, what President Trump did was on a different scale, on a different level, with um, you know implications that far that are that are outsized and far outweigh uh, those that we saw yesterday. But at its core, it's the same concept.
2: Don't you think it also furthers the way in which this administration delegitimizes like the the FBI, you know, national security? It's just it's just a way to basically say, you know, these organizations are subservient to what we are setting out to accomplish.
0: No, absolutely. And and, you know, the the Hypocrisy, of course, um, is is uh, on life support or perhaps even dead um, in this town um, because there's just so much of it to go around that it doesn't really count for much anymore. But I just can't get over the fact that uh, one of the leaders of this mob yesterday, uh, as recently as last year co-sponsored a resolution calling for the appointment of a special counsel to investigate why it was, how it was, that Secretary Clinton was not charged criminally uh, for her own handling of classified information. Uh, And you uh, put that in the context of the fact that President Trump, uh, in large part, was propelled to victory, at least to victory uh, in the Electoral College. Because of his embrace of this idea of information security, it was all about, you know, emails and mishandling of classified information and putting our national security at stake. Well, this is what this president and those around him, uh, including his allies in Congress, have really done at every step of the way. I think yesterday was probably uh, one of the more vivid examples of that. But it's not the only example uh, of uh, this administration and its partners and allies dismissing uh, national security. Um, in order to prioritize their own political interests.
1: Yeah, it is. It, you know, what I see uh, from my perspective is Donald Trump trying to delegitimize anything, um, any group or any institution that could potentially check his power, whether it's the FBI or the DOJ or the free press or the judiciary. Um, and here in impeachment, he's tried to delegitimize the whole process of impeachment, so that you can't possibly remove him from office, which is a scary thought. Um, you know, he tries to delegitimize uh, at times the amendment that, you know, would prevent him from running past two terms. I mean, he he's doing whatever he can to, um, you know, remove checks on his power. And, what you know, what I will say about the stunt, the fact that you and I and Patty are all talking about it tells me that it had some effect. It distracted, you know, at least some people for some period of time, uh, which is all I think it was intended to do because there's nothing no good – uh, flip side of the story for Republicans there's nothing good to talk about here
0: yeah and and in fact it seems that President Trump was winning of this uh, stunt beforehand and he has been uh, glowing in his praise of uh, of their conduct after the fact and and I think I think that's right you know the 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 principle stands that uh, when substance isn't on your side attack the process and this is precisely what we see is an assault um, on the uh, constitutional process um, of impeachment, uh, that is being conducted um, with Republicans in the room. There are, what, some 45 uh, House Republicans who have been part of this, including, by the way, Mike Pence's brother, um, who is now an elected Congress congressman from Indiana. Um, and so what's interesting to me is that you haven't seen Republicans come out substantively. And to sort of challenge the emerging narrative and to say, oh, no, Solomon didn't say that or no, Ambassador Taylor didn't say that. Ambassador Taylor actually said this. Uh, What what you are hearing is deafening silence um, from the Republicans, except for uh, matters that are ancillary um, to the scandal at hand. And there right now, that's process. Um, Right now, it is the. Uh, it is the, uh, the, the fiction that this is being conducted in some sort of uh, star chamber uh, by radical Democrats. I fully suspect that when this process moves out into the open and into into the public um, with public hearings, uh, you know, we will hear cries and hollers um, from many of these same Republicans uh, with the familiar refrains of witch hunt and, uh, you know, uh, uh, partisan assault. Um, I I think Republicans in this case should be, uh, should be careful of of what they ask for. Uh, and I think that will come back to, uh, it will come back to haunt them when this does in fact, uh, move into public view and they'll have to rely on a different angle of attack.
1: You left public service in a pretty high profile way. Uh, you did not want to serve in the Trump administration, I am. At, I I suspect that you could even you, you could not have uh, foreseen kind of the way in which you know Trump has had I think a profound and perverse impact on many of our institutions, including institutions that you uh, once served in.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. My concerns um, when I decided to resign from the CIA in, in 2017 um, were were predicated uh, on the fact that this was. Uh, For all intents and purposes, an ideological administration, one that um, had no use or at least little use in regard, even even uh, less regard uh, for the unbiased, unvarnished analysis of our intelligence community. This was an administration that uh, just a few days before had placed uh, Steve Bannon uh, on uh, the National Security Council. I think, uh, a move indicative of their disdain for the process. Um, at the time, I thought there would be disdain for the process. I thought there would be uh, some level of disregard for the process. What we've seen is they they've done away with it. They have done away with our national security and foreign policy processes. And in their place, um, you have a uh, group of um, hyper political, hyper partisan individuals uh, who have carried out a process, if you can even call it that, of their own um, that doesn't place the natural national interest first. Uh, it places President Trump's political interests, perhaps even his financial interests, um, ahead of our national security. I think the Ukraine scandal crystallizes that better than anything. Uh, but it's really part of a pattern. You know, ever since this administration came into office, uh, there have been policy decisions uh, that bear very little resemblance to what would be in our best national interest. Just to give you one example, a blockade against Qatar, uh, a country in the, in the Gulf uh, that hosts more than 10,000 troops. Um, a blockade that the State Department, that the Defense Department has opposed, um, but that the White House came out uh, fully in support of. Um, and this came to pass just after the Cuteries had denied Jared Kushner a multi-million dollar loan. Uh, now, again, um, all of this is shrouded in so much secrecy uh, and opacity that it's hard to it's hard to correlate uh, uh, and to assign causality. Um, but there is so much of what we have seen in the past three years that reeks of uh, a process that is designed to benefit one man and one family uh, ahead of the American people. And so uh, to the extent we have seen that over and over and over again, I I couldn't have envisioned that uh, when I resigned uh, in 2017. I I resigned for reasons that um, today look almost quaint. And, um, you know, in some ways, if we had... Uh, a functioning, more normal administration um, on whose National Security Council Principles Committee Steve Bannon happened to sit, uh, you know, in some ways this country might be better off. Um, but what we have seen uh, in the ensuing couple of years, um, I think to me at the time was, was unimaginable. Perhaps I just lacked the imagination. Um, uh, but, I, 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 you know, I think it's, uh, I just sort of marvel at what has become Um, not only of our national security and and foreign policy, um, but also of of good governance. Uh, It has been sorely lacking ever since.
1: Wow. Well, I don't think anyone saw any of this coming. Uh, I don't think any of us know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. But I appreciate you taking your time to share all of your insights with us. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation, and I've learned some things uh, that I didn't know before from you. So thank you very much.
2: Yes, thank you. Happy to do it.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay On Topic.